you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and I'm absolutely delighted to be sat here at 9.30 at night in Sydney chatting to the amazing Ronald Harvey in the US. Um, I was really, really lucky, fortunate, uh, and inspired by Ron when I met him um, in Boston. Both of us were attending um, a course at the Harvard Kennedy School together. And um, as most of you know, I'm an absolute advocate and incredibly passionate about connection. And the moment we met, actually walking back from the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, deep in conversation along the river on our way back to the hotel, I realized that there was a whole heap of stuff um, I could learn from this uh, incredible individual. And that was absolutely reinforced during a storytelling session where he shared some personal stories that, to be honest with you, moved me to tears and also taught me such a significant part and piece about myself that um, having returned to Sydney um, is allowing me to actually further improve the work that I do. Um, Ron is a, a certified coach as part of the John Maxwell team. Um, he's a VP of Global Core Strategies and Consulting. He's a retired US Army veteran with more than 34 years of leadership experience. But his purpose and passion is to make a difference. And he does that by inspiring leaders to excel through learning, through growth, and most of all, through adding value to others. Please uh, welcome to the podcast, the fabulous Ron. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Janine. It is it's a wonderful uh, opportunity. And thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute joy. You've got the early rise and I've got the late to bed right today with our time difference. Yes, and we have different weather. <laughs> we do, we do. Um, yeah, we, we're still hot here in Sydney, even though it's uh, heading into winter, but not quite as, quite as warm and <laughs> wet as you're having. Um, yes. it's, it's absolutely fabulous to, to have you on this podcast tonight, Ron. Um, as I shared, there was this moment whilst we were uh, both studying at Harvard Kennedy School and the wonderful, under the wonderful watchful eye of Ron Heifetz, um, where you shared um, sort of a moment, a, a, a moment in time for you that uh, pretty much I would say was a watershed moment and a turning point um, in your uh, journey and what you made that to mean. Are you, can you share that story with us today? And I'll try yeah. not to get emotional about it. Yeah, I've definitely, um, it's, it's been a great opportunity to meet meet you as well. Um, and everything that you've made a part of that school was, was phenomenal. So it was just for us to be walking down the river um, at that moment and having a conversation, you just never know where you're going to end up and who you're going to be talking to. So thank you for, for that opportunity as well and the stories that you've shared. Um, and so I'll lead into to the story for me is is young, uh, probably about, uh, about 20 26 years old, um, I was um, coming from um, deployment um, out of the uh, Gulf War, and the Army had selected me for 
uh, recruiting duty, which for most people in the military, um, regardless of branch of service, um, recruiting duty is not on their bucket list. <laughs> Say the it's not a job that anybody really wants, and but it's a necessary job to keep the forces in the ranks field. And so I got selected for recruiting duty and, and did not really want to do it and, and had a mentor that said I should do it. And um, I took their wise counsel and I went on recruiting duty and, and got assigned to the state where I grew up at. I'm about 40 miles from home um, in, a, in a city called Davie, Florida. Um, and I was recruiting and coming from combat, you know, to pretty naive sometimes some things or, or being in the military, you're kind of sheltered from a lot of things that's happening in the outside world, if you will, civilian life. And so um, diversity and inclusion happened really, really well in the military. But on this assignment, um, I was challenged where I was recruiting this, this um, young man, um, Caucasian young man, and the kid was super excited. He was, he was, he really wanted to go in the military and I had to work with him for his weight um, to get him down so he can, you know, meet the physical requirements. But I went to his house, drove out, full dress uniform, um, that was a requirement for us, and went to the house to go sit down and talk with him and his, and his family. And wasn't aware of what I was going to walk into. And when I went to the house and knocked on the door, um, the mom came to the door and looked at me and I told her who I was. And she said, um, yeah, you can, you can work with my son, but um, you can't come in my house. And she said, I don't, I don't let um, black people in the house. And at that moment, um, I had to make a decision in less than three seconds of what to do. That will change the trajectory for that young man, for me, for the other African-American recruiters or anybody of any race for that matter. Um, but I was blown away because I was in full uniform. Feelings were hurt. I was frustrated. I was angry. Um, discrimination hit hard for me at that point. And I heard about it and read about it and, and my parents probably had lived through it. But it was the first time I've really encountered it at that level in uniform where I just fought for the country. And so I gathered myself really quick, not knowing, you know, just really impromptu or, you know, instantly. Um, I told her, um, I'm sorry she feels that way. Um, and it's because I serve the country and the constitution of the United States um, that she's allowed to make that statement to me because freedom of speech is her right. And I said, I'll be more than happy to talk to her, to her son in the car. And um, the son got really angry. He was frustrated that, that that was taking place and he was totally embarrassed. And um, he began to get really upset and, and disrespect his mother, which put me in another awkward position because the military doesn't believe in disrespecting authority, whether right or wrong, we're still gonna be respectful. And I didn't really get to talk to the son that day because I told the mother, um, well, we may not be as interested in her son as we thought initially because we believe in respecting authority and he disrespects you and, and that will cause problems for us. So I didn't do the interview that day. Um, I actually walked away from it um, to gather my thoughts and felt like I had made all of the right choices. And and later realized that I did. The young man ended up in the army. I ended up the mother calling me on an Easter Sunday and um, saying that her son has so much respect for me. It was the, the first time that he's really respected someone at the level he had respected me. And she saw that I had changed his his view of the world. And she asked if I could come to the house on Easter Sunday because she needed my help. And um, I went to the house um, and ended up helping the mom and she apologized for her, her statement and comment because of the way she was raised. But she was very happy that I was helping her son who she, her and her husband could not do. And so I was able to offer him something that um, even with all the adversity to help this young man start a military career and, and get on the right trajectory. And, you know, so he, it was a, 
a watershed, a, a moment that I think I even changed you know, a couple of generations with that conversation, while at the same time I struggled. What was it that what was it that you found hard about that moment in time for yourself, Ron? Probably the most difficult thing for me um, was I was coming out of combat, mm. and um, I had fought for a country, um, and felt more respected. Um, and coming back where I had just fought for a country that I wasn't even respected in the country that I had fought for probably was the most difficult thing where, you know, um, I had experienced loss of life, um, had seen, you know, our soldiers and, and even your own life is at in, je- in jeopardy and you're doing it for the constitution of the United States and to come back and, and not feel respected in a country that you had just fought for was probably the most difficult thing for me. Um, and the race was the only reason why I wasn't being respected. Mm. And, and there are people that are still experiencing racism in the same way. What, what are you, and we're obviously living in a society now where we are trying, many of us, very hard to create environments of diversity, inclusion, belonging, whatever adjective you want to use to describe it. What, what advice, what learning from that experience do you take into your work now? Yeah, uh, uh, the, the advice that, that I take in, into the work that I do um, and, and with the clients that I have uh, afforded the opportunity to work with is I always try to to help people understand um, that at the end of the day, we all have the same things that we want out of life. And and then I grew up in an all, all black community, so I had to learn it. I didn't learn it as a kid to to be as diverse and as, and, and as inclusive as I am. Um, I learned that by joining the military um, because prior to the military, I, I mean, I really wasn't exposed to um, a diverse population. Uh, so when I got in the military, I think the advice that I would share with most people is how much damage are, are we causing by not allowing people to be authentic and be themselves. And so I don't think you have to co-sign on everything, but I don't think you should disrespect people simply because you have differences. Mm. And why, from your, in your opinion, why, um, why are there still uh, individuals either in the, I don't know if it's in the military, but we certainly see it in the workplace and we certainly see it in society where the damage is continuing to be caused. From your perspective, what do you think is driving that? I think for, for most people, what I, what I found, um, and this is, and I think I may have nailed it at Harvard more than I've nailed it any, any other time is, is that people are insecure and not willing to listen um, because this fear of they may learn something right. Um, you know, even for that mother at that moment when she saw me, she wasn't willing to listen, but as she listened to her son later and saw that, you know, he cared and he got past it. And it was someone that was going to help her son achieve something that she wanted him to achieve and she couldn't, she found herself in a position where she, she needed to listen and she needed my help. And I think my approach to her and respecting her allowed her to reach out. I think if I had responded any other way, even though I still could have helped her, I don't think she would have if I were responding in a negative manner. And so I think just pausing long enough to listen to other people mm-hmm. and not be afraid of learning. I think that's what's causing us so much divisiveness is that um, we think the world is only made um, around us oftentimes, and, and we don't explore outside of our own circle most often. Most of us have two to three layers external, but um, you know, in Harvard, you know, I've never been in a room with, with a Palestinian, um, you know, sitting in the room and learning, you know, and really wanting to learn. So I think just what's causing us is we won't take the time to learn about, really learn about other people and what's important to them. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? When, when, you know, this podcast is all about unleashing brilliance and very much talking to the individual um, about and exploring what's enabled them to unleash their, their own brilliance. But what you're also referring to is our own fear um, of learning something different or uh, understanding something different about somebody else actually is stopping that person from becoming the best version of themselves that they can be. So we're not only damaging our own growth, but we're also putting a dampener on potentially on other people's growth. Um, are you seeing that in your work too, in particularly in this, this work that you're doing around helping people uh, make the difference they're supposed to make? Yes. Yeah. And, and I do. I mean, I have, I have a book out, um, Janine, where, you know, the title of it is, is, is just make a difference. And, and, and it talks about, you know, how do you do it when, when the pressure's on? Mm. And, and it, because it's easy to, to make a difference when everything's right um, and everybody's comfortable and, and nobody's feeling out of their comfort zone or going past their level of, of frontier of competence. Mm. You know, and I think brilliance is located outside of, of that, that frontier of what we're all comfortable with. I, I think for me in the work that we do as an organization, is how we really got started. Um, I served as a coach for the, for the federal government after I retired. And I was coaching senior leaders that were sending people into combat. And I would always ask them the, the, the decision that they were making, did they pause long enough to realize how many generations it would impact? And so when they make a decision, could they look past just the person that's sitting in front of them and look for, you know, the spouses or the kids or the, or the grandparents or the mothers or, you know, and the relatives of these people, because if something was to happen and they're not coming back from combat, it impacts more than just that one person. It impacts generations and churches and schools and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. And, and so when you make those decisions, don't make them lightly. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think I really begin to want to do the work that I do is I saw me changing more than just the current time that I live in. The work that I do will probably, you know, it should last longer than you and I if we do it really, really well. So people that are listening, I'm sure now are nodding their heads and going, yeah, um, you know, I'm working in a corporate environment that's highly under pressure. I'm thinking about some of my clients I've spoken to today where headcounts are being cut uh, sales targets have been lifted and yet spend might have been chopped as well. So the pressure is well and truly on. How, how, what tips do you give? What, what advice would you give to people listening about how they can make a difference when that pressure is on? Yeah, and the thing that, that I, I practice myself as well as, as try to help my clients understand is that for us as human beings, oftentimes we're, we're in that fight or flight space um, when the pressure's on and we want to make a, a decision versus pausing long enough to allow our brain to catch up with our actions. Um, and so I would tell most people, oftentimes when the pressure's on, if we would pause long enough to allow our brain to function properly versus being, you know, very reactive, we would tend to do a much better job of making the the most accurate decision. But, you know, we're human. And, and oftentimes your name is on the bottom line or your report is on the bottom line or revenue's on the line or you're looking at the scoreboard. You know, and I think oftentimes people allow the scoreboard to drive their behavior versus pausing and processing and allow the fundamentals and the skill sets to drive their behavior. Um, You know, if the scoreboard is saying what they want, then they're comfortable and they're fine and they're making great choices as leaders. But if the scoreboard is saying that they're behind it in the game, whatever that game may be, 
people tend to to modify and do irrational things um, and do unfair things, unfair practices to people because they're most concerned about scoreboards or spreadsheets or revenue or profit. Mm. Is, it, is there a moment in time that you can remember, Ron, where you were that person and what was the the moment or the learning that made you realize that that way of operating wasn't going to help you achieve the best version of yourself. Yeah. I mean, and and I'll use it for, for our listeners. I'll use a a personal moment because I always share real stories for me. Personal stories is um, my wife and I have an older son um, and and my wife and I are both retired military. So we both served the country, you know, so just in our house, there's 42 years of military service um, between my wife and I. And um, our son ended up um, joining the military. You know, of course, he, he grew up in that space. And, and we don't really tell the kids where, where they need to go. Um, we ask them to be productive, um, to be respectful and be responsible citizens. And, and whatever their calling is, we let them do it. Um, but the son had went into the military and um, had been in for a while. And, of course, you know, his thing as a kid, just like any kid, they want to, you know, make their parents happy. And he was chasing these dreams and doing everything. And he made some bad choices um, in the military. And um, my wife and I had been senior people in the military. And the choices he, were make, he was making or had made um, caused for him to get in some serious trouble. And at that moment, I could have saved his career um, with one phone call. But it was, it was such a, a time for me because it was an integrity violation. It violated everything, the core values and beliefs and who we were and, and what we thought was right. Um, and so when the senior leaders called, um, they asked me my opinion. I said, well, what did he do? They told me, I said, well, he's my son and I love him, but you still have to do the right thing. And um, his career came to a halt, um, which was a struggle because I know I, with one phone call, I could have changed the direction of that career. Um, they would have did a favor for me, but it wasn't the right thing to do. And so that was a, a first part of that, me making that choice and doing the right thing. But the second part came, Janine, was um, being that he was being separated, he had to find somewhere to go. And I was very angry because he had misled me and wasn't honest and, you know, kind of just misled led his mother and I. And um, and my wife looked at me and she said, um, okay, now now what? almost the story at Harvard, where do we begin? Where do we go from here? And she said, okay, well, we're gonna have to let him come back to the house. And as a father, I was angry about that. Um, Here I had an adult child, had done everything for, and made choices um, that caused him to have to come back to the house as an an adult. And my wife says, you're gonna have to bring him back home and, and you're gonna have to be willing to help him get back on his feet. And when he showed up, I was still frustrated. And at that moment, I had to make another leadership decision, which was be his father and not this this corporate America mindset person. He was still my son. And I think I, I owed him to still be his dad, even though I had been disappointed or let down. And that, that I think, saved my son's life. I think that he was in a place that I don't know if he, what his behaviors would have been, his actions would have been. But to this day, he says that I was the person that's always been there, no matter what. Um, through the tough times, the disappointing times, the time of, of, of him him not really living up to what he thought he should do or I thought he should do, whoever you know, put that measurement in place. But I've never altered on being his dad and that meant the world to him. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in corporate America, sometimes to, to the world, you're only one person, but to one person, sometimes you're the world. You, you literally are that person they can always count on. And I think that's where I learned that more than anything 
is I wrote the book after that of just make a difference, whatever that means to, to the person that you're supposed to make it for. Mm. And with that comes incredible responsibility and what you've just shared there. Thank you for sharing that story. I hear, I hear as an individual, as an adult, as a father, um, that you took absolute ownership of the actions you had to take. And with that, an incredible amount of bravery and courage. Um, and I think this concept of, of bravery and courage isn't necessarily packing that backpack and climbing Mount Everest. It is yes. those everyday behaviors where you have the chance to create, to turn a ripple into a wave, but it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that because doing the right thing, I think is often the hardest thing to do. Yes. Yeah. It is. It's almost like, the, the art of, of practicing, I think we get like these moments um, to be a really, really great leader. And it's not like you do it every day, all day, but you get really significant moments in our lives. For me, that you really get to practice this thing that we call leadership that's, that's so evasive for most of us. But I think it's just moments throughout where you really get to, to show your leadership ability. And, and so my definition, you know, I know we learned at Harvard, but my definition for leadership is, is serving those that depend on you the most when they need you the most. Mm. Who's been the most influential person in your life, uh, Ron, and, and why would you say that? Well, that's a, that's a toss-up for me, uh, Janine, um, because there are two people that are equally um, significant. Um, I have a, my dad was significant. I mean, it still is um, because he's just, my dad is, has dementia. He's legally blind, has been blind for 40 years. Um, but even through that, he's always pretty positive. Um, he's always working hard. Um, and to lose his eyesight at a young age, my dad just never, you know, when I went through the thing for the military and I told you about, you know, the, the story with the lady, my dad, you know, I was frustrated and irritated and I was ready to get out of the military. And my dad, you know, helped me pause and reflect um, when I was getting ready to walk away from my own dream and, and what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do 20 years, but I was so caught up in myself. Um, and I was complaining to my dad about it and I was getting out. And he literally stopped. He said, you know, he laughed and joked about it, but then he really asked a question I needed to answer. And I was, why did you go in? What, what was it about? And I said, I wanted to get my education and, and, and I wanted to see the world and I wanted to help other people. I wanted to do something bigger than me. And at that time, he said, well, you have your education, right? I said, yeah, I have my degree, Dad. He said, okay, so you got that. He said, um, you are traveling, right? I said, yes. He said, so isn't the military still allowing you to do something bigger than you? I said, yeah, Dad, it really is. And, and keeping in mind, I'm the last of 12 kids, and there was no college money, so I, I needed the money for college, and I wanted to get out of my own community and see the world. Um, I just had this big vision, you know, as a kid from an all-black community. And he says, now you're back in your, your, your area where you grew up at as a role model and you're caught up in yourself. Aren't there some kids that need that opportunity like you had it? And I said, yeah. He said, so why don't you, why don't you give someone the chance you had and, and not get caught up in yourself? And that changed my entire military career. Mm. Mm, yes, I mean, first of all, I'm still, I'm, what an awesome guy your man is. And then I'm thinking my brain as a mother of three is trying to get my head around raising 12 children and um, doing the best for those 12 children. Um, 
and you know the work that you you did in the military and what you're doing now um how where did it all come from where did this desire to make a difference come from well i don't know if i've been asked where it came from i don't think anyone's ever asked me where it came from um it Janine, it started in, in probably ninth grade for me. Mm. Um, in high school, you know, I told you the community we grew up in. In, um, in high school, we were bused into a, another school, so I got a chance to start getting exposed to diversity and inclusion. But what was happening for me, and I saw it really quick, um, a lot of African-American kids, boy or girl, um, the boys were getting in trouble and, and not getting good grades or dropping out of school and getting and they were getting in fights and just stuff that I just just tormented me. Um, and the girls were, were dropping out or getting pregnant or, or just things that were adult behaviors, um, drinking or smoking, just things that were just, you know, really rallying our community. And I, I was afforded the opportunity to, I was like, I got to do something. And I asked the school if I could start speaking about teen pregnancy and dropping out of school. And I put a speech together and, and they gave me an opportunity to go into an auditorium with all the kids there. And I was only in ninth grade. I was really young. I wasn't, you know, um, I wasn't, I was a, a good student. Um, I was, I was an introvert. I wasn't a speaker, but I had this passion that I, someone had to help save the kids, even though I was a kid myself. And I started, um, I did the speech and went really, really well. And, and the school allowed me from that point forward to travel to all of the different schools and start speaking on a topic that the educators couldn't speak on that the kids would listen. And I, be, I became, that became like a movement for me is to, to help our African-American kids that were doing things that I, I don't think that's what they wanted to do, it's just what they knew. Mm-hmm. And I started speaking on it um, about dropping out and teen pregnancy and gang violence and, and stuff that just was destroying us. And I, I became a speaker um, from my ninth through my 12th grade year of, of speaking on, on that issue. Looking back to you as that ninth grader, how old's ninth grade in the US-ish? Um, you're hitting uh, about 13, 14 years old. Wow. Yeah. So, so looking back as a, so I have a 13-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son. And I'm curious, looking back, being that 13, 14-year-old and speaking to your peers, um, your cohort, what, what do you think you said that helped them? What, were you, what was your key message at that time? Yeah, I mean, the key message for, for me, for them that I was sharing with them is first talking about the, the things that were happening that no one would talk about in public, which was sex and drugs and, and violence and drinking and smoking and really um, addressing the mess. And, and then saying that, you know, we can be whatever we want to be, but we have to, we have to do the right thing for ourselves. And I started talking more about education. I started talking about putting yourself into sports and, and I, and I spoke more about, it's not really where you from or what your parents did or what the education or a lack thereof was. It was all about what did you want to do? And, and the main message that I left is for all the kids. And I still leave that today when I speak to kids is that you, you have a opportunity to change the name of your family. And, and this, that was a moment to really, if your family didn't have a last name, you can clean it up and you can change it and you can make it something that you'll be proud to wear. And so what would make it proud? And that was my main message is, is how do you create a family name? Even if it's been drugged through the mud and it's been destructive, how do you change the image of your family name? And so I, that was a main message for me is, is let's start changing our family name. Mm. 
And how now, um, with the work that you're doing now, what's, what's your key message to, to adults? Uh, when we, you know, in my, my language about helping people make a difference or unleash their brilliance, what's, what's your biggest wish for the people that you work with? Yeah, and for the, for the people that I work with, it, it, the biggest thing that I'm always striving for is how do you create a culture where people not only want to be there, they help you achieve everything you want to achieve. Mm. And, and that part of it is helping people understand what, what culture do they want versus just showing up and, and, and going through the motion uh, because you have to, you know, you have responsibilities and, and things that have to be taken care of. How do you really, for our leaders, and we spend a lot of time with leaders, is, is what is it, first, what, what culture are you, would you, do you think is most effective? You know, not a like or dislike, just really effective for what you're trying to accomplish. And, and what does that look like? And why is that important? And so we spend tons of time on, on speaking on, you know, even in the church, I serve in a leadership role for our church. And it was all about, you know, we had to change the entire culture of our church because we got into a routine and we, and people were, the church was shrinking. And so, you know, everything was about the culture, uh, which is not necessarily what you write down, how you do things, it's really how you behave. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started focusing on, you know, how does your behavior help achieve what you're trying to achieve? And so I spent a lot of time, you know, tons of time on helping organizations figure out What's their culture? And if it's not what they want it to be, how do you intentionally develop it? And who do you need on your team? And who do you need to get off your team? And if you had a magic wand and you could change cultures of some of our, you know, biggest influencing brands, governments, businesses, small or large, what from your incredible amount of experience, both in and outside the military, can you sort of maybe, what are some of the key traits that are coming out that you're seeing in your work of, of the sorts of cultures that people want and the sorts of behaviors where people thrive? Yeah, I think, I think the things that, that are happening that I'm seeing, you know, as we do the work that we do, and I'm, and, and I'm always humbled about it, is the things that show more than anything else of the, of the shift for them um, is, is people are more transparent. Mm-hmm which means they kind of just, here, here's where we are. So um, the other thing is I'm starting to see trust get built in organizations faster and more consistently um, and sustainable. People are, are starting to trust each other more. And, and then the, the collaboration and the real work is getting done. If you ask me the one thing that if I, if I had to do one thing for, for any of those traits to show up, 90% of the time for us, trust has to be handled like upfront immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, almost as though we did at, 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 at a Harvard Kennedy School is the more, here's a phrase I kind of use for Shanine is, the more people know, the more they show. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the knowing you piece is allowing people to, to build the trust with you, then they start showing you. Um, you know, people often say, hey, let me be honest with you. And, and I think more people, I don't think people are dishonest when they meet us. I just think they don't know enough about us and we don't know enough about them. So they're not as transparent. So they don't really show you everything. And the closer our relationship gets, we become more transparent. So I don't think we're, we're lying to each other. I just think we got to be okay with allowing people to, to know us, a piece of us and not oversharing, but you can't be a closed book either. And how do you... Um how do you help people b- 
become more open about themselves when you know all of the all of the work that's coming out currently um in research is that there is uh, low levels of trust out there at the moment amongst businesses brands governments media uh all the fake news politicians etc etc so in a world at the moment where um trust is being questioned um how do you give people our create the space to encourage them to be more real versus protecting who they really are. Have you got any tips for people that you can share? Yeah, I, I, I mean, and, and thanks, a beautiful question, um, because you're exactly right that, that we're at this place where trust is probably at an all-time low across any industry or discipline that we want to think, think about or talk about. And so I think the, the thing that, that we tend to do often with our clients is find something that they're all very passionate about and comfortable speaking about. And so we create this container, if you will, to, to be transparent and self-reflect on, you know, we, we, we did it at Harvard and we, we tend to do this in our organization is, is we, we ask the question of, of why three times and allow people to share why they're there. Mm-hmm. And once we get to the, the, the third level of it as well, it's almost like, you know, people begin to process and go beneath the surface or beneath the iceberg. And, and so one of the things that we always say when we walk into an organization um, and we're sitting getting ready to do the work, Janine, is, is we get them to believe into this process of nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove. Mm. And we try to create that space in the room where we don't have to hide behind any titles or positions, you know, things that we normally would because the organization, um, sometimes it's unsafe in organizations to be really transparent. And so we try to create that space where they don't have to hide behind any of their titles and, and they have nothing to lose by um, feeling if they weren't, if they were at this level of incompetence and they got to learn something different or what they may be fearful of and nothing to really prove that. So the expectation for us in the organization is for us to be great and that's different for all of us. And so we begin to build from that premises of nothing to hide, nothing to lose and nothing to prove. And we help the organization create that space where that's actually real and not just something that's written on the wall. How do I show up without I don't have to hide behind a, a, a title or a hide behind something or fearful? Um, I don't have to feel like I'm going to lose or I have to prove all the time when I show up. Mm, I love it. What's what's the one bit of advice that you hear uh, banded about to uh, clients, businesses that you work with that you just wish you could tell people to ignore? Yeah, I, I think that because of the society that we live in now, if I could tell people to ignore anything, and I, and I try to, is don't believe everything that you hear, see, or read, especially social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think media, as great as it is, I think it's also just as detrimental um, because there's so much fake news or inaccurate news and people don't, don't take the time to get the data. They just run with what they hear. And so I would say, um, if you don't really get a chance to talk to the individual that you're hearing something about, then, um, I would take it with a, with a grain of salt. And, and that, that part of it, I think gets us in a lot of trouble is we run with the first thing we hear. Mm. Mm. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, this generation coming through too. uh, finding that even more challenging than ever before as to what is truth and what isn't truth. Um, So we're about to enter yet another, another field of big, deep work. I think what, what do you like to think deeply about? What's the thing that, that you cogitate on percolate on the thing that keeps you inspired? 
thing, what, what keeps me inspired more, I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. And the thing that keeps me going every day and uh, super excited is, is this thing of inclusion. You know, so when I, when I was at Harvard, I, I mean, I literally was every day super excited about going to class every day because I love diversity. I love inclusion. I, um, I love being in a room where um, there's not very many people that, that look like me or have the same beliefs or values or talk like me. I mean, that space is just like, you know, um, like going to Disney World for me. I mean, it's just super exciting and fun. It's like dreams come true for me. Um, and so what I'm always super excited about in Columbia, South Carolina, we still have a, a huge gap um, of separation for us as a city and as a state um, where there's just so much that keeps us apart, um, which is very discouraging um, for me personally. Um, you know, and I, and I always figured out where did I get this from? I, I had um, C. Dolores Tucker is her name, Cynthia Dolores Tucker, and she was a, a civil rights movement woman out of Philadelphia, uh, which is a cousin of mine that, that marched with Dr. King. You know, if you look behind me, there's a photo with um, Dr. King and um, President Obama. And I always wonder, you know, where's this DNA thing coming from? So I think it's really in my DNA to always ensure that everybody, no matter where they're from, who they are, where they live, or what their religion, or what they drive, or their zip code, or, or what color their skin is, that, that we're all humans created equally, and, and no one should be able to take that away from us. Mm. Can you share, I will share a photo when we post this blog, but what are the plaques saying under that, those pictures of Obama and Dr. Luther King? Yeah, and so for Dr. King, I mean, um, what we all know very, very well is, is this says I have a dream and it has this name and it's in uh, August 28th of 1963. And and I think um, the other side of it is a picture of President Obama with the president's seal in the center of it. And it says the dream realized President Obama January 20th of 2009. And so um, it was one of the things, especially for for the African-American community is, you know, um, I think Dr. King had a dream and, and wanted to see things treated fairly. And, and President Obama, we still got a lot of work to do. I think he helped, you know, close that gap and, and help that dream become a more real force. Um, serving as the president, the first African-American president um, for the United States of America, which was huge for us. Um, and we still got a lot of work to do, but it definitely felt good to watch that happen. Mm. Mm. What's your dream, Ron? For for me, I think the work that, the work that I do, the community that I live in, um, you know, here in Columbia, South Carolina, um, personally, my wife and I have probably accomplished everything that we, we want to, to do. You know, so on, on all marks of success, I think we've been pretty successful. But I want to be relevant now. Mm. And for me, relevant means how do I do something that, that helps someone else? How do I give them something that they can never repay me for? And that would be to really bring our community together. Um, that race doesn't become an issue or gender doesn't become an issue or women being paid right doesn't become an issue or sexual orientation is not an issue or where you live or what zip code or what school. But those things are not conversations consistently that we're, we're having to talk about. Um, we, we just allow people to be who they are and we respect them for where they are and who they are. And so my dream would be how do we get to that place um, where that's not something we always got to be mindful of um, because there are people that are still being taught bad behaviors. Mm. Oh, I love it. I'm, I'm with you. I'm following right behind you, Ron, on that dream. Absolutely. It's, um, I think if each of us can make a little difference, um, as Abig Abigail Disney 
once said to me, she said, just choose to be a brick in the wall of change, Janine, choose to be a brick in the wall of change. Uh, something I, I absolutely try and live by every single day. Um, Ron, if we, could, um, if we could Skype Zoom in your dad right now, what would you say to him? I, I mean, for, for my dad, I would probably say the, the most influential person. Thank you for, for being who he was. Um, mm -hmm. as, as an individual, you know, losing his eyesight. Um, and a part of the story I didn't share is my mom and my dad met. Um, my mom had, had nine kids prior to my dad. Um, and he, he, he married her with nine kids. And, and he took care of nine kids that were not his. Um, and he raised them like they were his. Um, and he had his eyesight. And so I think my dad, for me, is like this, this hero that says, you know, um, unconditional love. I mean, he literally taught that. Um, and so the work that I do now, I do a lot of work in fatherhood and, and helping dads be better dads and men be better men and men trust in many. So my dad taught me a lot of fundamental values and beliefs that I still to this day hold very dear. Um, and I think it helps me survive. It helps me deal with tough issues. It allows me to respect people, you know, so outside of anything else, you know, and, and education or religion, I think my dad gave me a really solid foundation to be a, a, a good husband, a good father, a good human, human being and individual. I mean, he gave me the resiliency or taught me the resiliency to be who I am today. Mm. Ron, I could just keep talking and talking and talking with you. Um, it's always so inspiring to have the gift of time with you. And I, um, absolutely know that the connection that we made at Harvard is going to be one that lasts for far longer than the walk down the river and this podcast. Um, you know, I'm such, it's such, I feel very lucky to have you come into my life and to share some of the conversations that we are, we've had so far. And I know there are many to come. Um, you know, just, just there's so many awesome messages uh, that we've been able to, to cover in the last last short while. Um, the damage, you talked about the damage that we are causing or we are at risk of causing without realizing it. Um, again, I, you know, in the work that I do, you see that in terms of the impact that people are having on others without them realizing it. Um, the whole conversation around the fear of learning something that may be different to what we thought to be true or to what we, um, or what's different to us. And actually in that fear of learning creates huge opportunity for ourselves and those people that we're coming into contact with to, to become brilliant versions of themselves. Um, I love the whole conversation around how to make a difference when the pressure is on. Um, because you're right, we can all have great intentions but often under that pressure, we, we revert to our traditional MO. And, um, and that's where we are often at risk of, um, as, as we learn, becoming inside out and not necessarily outside in. And just that, that final, uh, or two other things. One, the culture, creating cultures where people want to be um, and where they're able to achieve more than they ever thought was possible. Um, and that fundamentally being around trust. But one of the things that, that resonates for me in all your work and everything that you have done and everything that you're continuing to do is this what I this above the line leadership piece around the power of unconditional love um, and unconditional love for yourself um, in terms of the, the person that you are bringing to the planet and the work that you're doing, but also the unconditional love that you quite clearly have 
for other people um, and to unlock their potential. So thank you for sharing all of that. Ron, one of the final things I want to ask, you know, we often ask, and I think you may have touched on this, but I'm going to give you the chance to say it again. And we often ask people what they want to become. Um, but my question for you really is more around what do you, what do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, I mean, for, I want to be remembered for uh, an individual that truly did everything he could to do to make a difference for those that didn't have a voice or didn't have a seat at the table or felt they didn't have a space to accomplish that. And and that's what I've done in this city. Um, that's what I'll continue to do in this city. Um, and I serve on several boards simply because you know, I sit at the table and I, that's a question I always ask, how do we make a difference for them? Not, not why they can't, but how do we be a positive advocate to make a difference for those that deserve an opportunity to be just as successful to the American dream as anyone else? Um, and that's what I want to be remembered for is that I really stood up to make a difference, um, not for any personal gain, but because it was the right thing to do. And how lucky is your community to have you committed to that? Thank you so much, Ron. Um, it's been an absolute joy to chat to you. Um, how, what is the best way that people can find you if they want to reach out and connect? Yeah, I mean, I'm on, I'm on social media. I mean, um, LinkedIn is probably the, the one of the primary ways that if you want to connect, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, also, I, um, my company's webpage, which is www.gcs.consulting ing at the end and then ron harvey um on i have a twitter account uh, ron harvey um and then linkedin um my company's on linkedin as well as myself are probably the primary ways um and i love what i do um you know just just doing the right thing so those are probably the primary ways Janine. um and i love the fact that you had me on here i mean just listen to you i can i can talk to you and in your conversations your questions were powerful um and i can probably do this for much longer than what time allows today, but I really appreciate the fact that you're doing the work you're doing and that walk down the river and how it changed my life and, and how I see things differently from that, that experience. Oh, thank you, Ron. It's been an absolute pleasure. We will absolutely uh, be seeing each other again soon and I will get you back. There is so much more to cover. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy. And um, I know our listeners will have gained so much from this conversation. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, you, Janine. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.